All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. the guns, which had hitherto been concealed and kept silent, were ready to open fire at zero hour. And all along that front, the eager heart of Canada waited impatiently for the dawn. The iron throats nearby crashed forth their message of death to the Germans. From 3,000 guns, the tempest of death swept through the air. It was a wonderful sound. The flashes of guns in all directions made lightning in the dawn. In an instant, the enemy's artillery replied, and against the morning clouds, the bursting shrapnel flashed. I knelt on the ground and prayed to the god of battles to guard our noble men. There was such splendor of human character being manifested in that far-flung line where smoke and flame mocked the calm of the morning sky that the watcher felt he was gazing upon eternal things. Frederick Scott, Senior Chaplain, 1st Canadian Division. The soldiers of the four Canadian divisions advanced up to steady incline of Vimy Ridge on Easter Monday, April 9th, 1917. Overhead, Billy Bishop, flying his Newport aircraft, took note of the Canadians' unhurried and measured pace. The men seemed to wander across no man's land and into the enemy trenches, as if the battle was a great bore to them. To me, it seemed that they must soon wake up and run, that they were altogether too slow, that they could not realize the great danger they were in. I could not get the idea out of my head that it was just a game they were playing at. It all seemed so unreal. Nor could I believe that the little brown figures moving about below me were really men. Men going to the glory of victory. 
or the glory of death. In the advance of the Canadians, there was much that was new. An application of tactics that would transform the way the war in the trenches was fought. On July 1st, 1916, the British, under the command of General Douglas Haig, launched an attack along a 20-kilometer front on the Somme, an offensive meant to smash through the German lines and relieve pressure on the French at Verdun. In the first half hour of battle alone, the British sustained 57,000 casualties. The Royal Newfoundland Regiment, fighting as part of the British 88th Brigade, lost 710 of its total strength of 801 officers and men. A lot of our men were killed before they got to the front line, and the gaps in the wire were full of our dead. I'll never forget the look on them kids' faces. They were kids, fresh from home. And to see the dead and dying around there everywhere, and blood, and the noise of the shells, it was an awful introduction to warfare. Stretcher-bearer Howard Morey, Royal Newfoundland Regiment. By early September, it was the Canadians' turn. The 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Divisions moved from the relative peace and quiet of the Ypres salient to the killing fields of the Somme. Corporal Archie McKinnon wrote his sister. Dear sister, say, you ought to see the beautiful city of Ypres, knocked as flat as a pancake. There was a spell of 20 days that I never heard a gun, but when we landed at the Somme, Good night. Just as we got in, the order came over the top. So away we went after the Bosch, under the severest fire ever known in this war. Oh, I am a hundred times better off now. Just imagine, a broken leg. Why, a person couldn't wish for a better blighty. Six weeks or so in bed and limp till the duration is my motto. No more France for me if I can get out of it. Your affectionate brother, Archie. In less than a month, the Battle of the Somme was over. 8,000 Canadian soldiers were killed and another 17,000 wounded. The British Army's casualties under General Haig's command totaled 600,000, all for a gain of 2.5 kilometers of obliterated farmland that turned out to be of no strategic value. The training manual of the British Fourth Army on the eve of the Battle of the Somme made the reason for the disaster abundantly clear. The men must learn to obey by instinct, without thinking. The whole advance must be carried out like a drill. The performance of the Canadians at Ypres and at the Somme was considered exceptional and was rewarded with the task of taking Vimy Ridge, the strongest position on the German defense line. 
At the Somme and at Verdun, the British, French, Canadians, and Anzacs had endured what no men before them had endured, and for nothing. If things were to change at Vimy, they had to change at the top. had begun with a German sweep through Belgium that took them all the way to the Marne River, less than 30 miles from Paris. There, the French rallied and, with the British, drove back the overextended German army to a defense line that stretched from Belgium on the North Sea to the border of Switzerland. Some places in what I call this ribbon of stealth would be only a mile wide. Other places, because of the flat terrain, it was wider. This ribbon, or belt, of absolute stealth, day and night, week after week, month after month, year after year, never changing. This band of deadly stealth in which no man moved or spoke loudly. They speak of trenches in this strange ribbon of deadly stealth across Europe. Trenches is too romantic a name. These were ditches. As time went by, they had no garbage disposal, no sewage disposal. They became filthy. And in that setting, men lived year after year. Lieutenant Greg Clark, 4th Canadian Mounted Rifles. The strongest natural obstacle in the land of stealth was Vimy Ridge, rising 145 meters or 500 feet at its highest point, and extending eight kilometers or five miles along a northwest-southeast axis, north of the city of Arras, which remained in French hands. When the Canadians arrived in November and December 1916, the western slope of the ridge leading to the German trenches at the summit had seen more killing than any comparable area in all of France. More than 160,000 British and French, and perhaps 100,000 Germans, had been killed or wounded there. And all that killing had left the battle lines precisely where they were two years before. The Canadians had no sooner arrived from the Somme than the Germans mounted a large sign. Welcome, Canadians. The winter of 1917 was the worst and the longest of the war. Driven by tempestuous winds, a deluge of rain, sleet, and snow cascaded across the battlefields, making the life of the soldiers in the trenches a bitter struggle for survival. Major Kenneth Maxey. The Germans had had two years to prepare their defensive position, and their dugouts lay far underground in chalk caverns, large enough, in some cases, to accommodate a battalion. Their network of trenches, three deep, was designed to hold until reinforcements beyond the range of Allied guns could be brought into action. Crown Prince Ruprecht, brother to the Kaiser and in command of the German forces, thought the ridge was impregnable. It afforded him and the Germans on the crest 
a view of the Canadian positions that stretched for 8,000 yards, making surprise impossible. Or so they believed. I started this letter, my dear Sylvia, some days ago and meant to finish it, but there is this beastly war going on here, and I had to bolt off to watch people trying to kill one another. And now I have nothing to say. Yours ever, Julian. On May 21st, 1916, Lieutenant General Julian Bing, who was with the British Army at Vimy, left to take command of the Canadian Corps at Ypres. Why am I sent to the Canadians? I don't know a single Canadian. Why this stunt? However, there it is. I am ordered to these people and will do my best. The corps of which Bing had taken command was unique in the British Army, in that the divisions that constituted it were permanently attached to one another, due to the instructions of Sam Hughes, Canada's megalomaniacal minister of militia and defense. Hughes believed that Canadians were the best soldiers in the world and that he was an infallible judge of military ability, which he perceived most frequently in his relations and friends. Only five days after taking the job, Bing was close to having had enough. I presented a sort of ultimatum saying I did not think I could carry on unless promotions and appointments were in my hands. These men are too good to be led by politicians and dollar magnets. I don't want imperial officers, but Canadians who have proved their worth and not bum starts. If they refuse, I will offer my resignation. There is nothing else for it. To officer these splendid men with political protégés is, to my mind, criminal. Bing was an aristocrat, close enough to royalty for King George to call him Bungo and his military bloodlines extended back via a line of generals to an admiral in the Seven Years' War. In 1915, he had conducted the British withdrawal from the Gallipoli Peninsula after the disastrous Dardanelles campaign without the loss of a single man. The German official historian of the campaign observed, As long as war exists, their evacuation will stand before the eyes of all strategists of retreat as a hitherto unattained masterpiece. General Arthur Curry, the man who would help Bing plan the assault on Vimy Ridge, was in many respects Bing's opposite. Born in Strathroy, Ontario, his father had died when Arthur was 15. Curry left at 19 for British Columbia, where, after a brief teaching career, he became a real estate and insurance broker. His lack of education, he possessed only a high school diploma and a third class teacher's certificate, would have prevented him from achieving the rank he did in any European army, as would his total lack of combat experience. Anything he knew of war had come from books. He had arrived in France in the spring of 1915 and assumed command of Canada's first division that September. Curry emerged as a hero from the Second Battle of Ypres and was now the senior Canadian divisional commander and Bing's choice to go to the Somme and to Verdun to study the lessons learned by the French and the British. Curry kept a list of things to remember. One described his approach to war, 
A thorough preparation must lead to success. Neglect nothing. He drew many conclusions from his examination of the Somme and Verdun battlefields, and one insight that he put to immediate use. I found many NCOs who said they had been shown maps, yet they could not recognize mine. Maps are very useful things, yet this battalion tried to do too much by the map. If their objectives had been laid out on the ground and maps examined and explained in conjunction with practice trenches, the men would have advanced to their attack with a much clearer idea of their task. Curry's determination to neglect nothing would make Vimy the most rehearsed battle in military history. One important factor in the battle was the agreement Bing and Curry reached concerning the character of the troops they led. The Canadian is skeptical of the concept that rank in itself gives anyone the right to lead. He himself has volunteered for war, which he sees as a dirty business, which must be finished as soon as possible. He's willing to do his part in winning it, but he resents any implication that anyone, officers included, has a greater interest in the outcome than he does. All he asks of his officers is that they know their job and do it. Jeffrey Williams. From this analysis flowed the idea that every Canadian soldier at Vimy should be told everything about the coming battle but the date. Let's mark it up, come on! The troops were conducted over a replica of the battlefield, with tapes, flags, and signposts indicating German trenches, barbed wire, entanglements, machine gun posts, and other strong points. Each man was told what to expect and where to expect it, what his objective was and how long it would take to get there. One of the many benefits of this dress rehearsal was that the men gained a sense of the distances involved, 100 yards or 80 yards or 150 yards. 150 yards into the other fellow's country is quite a long distance. The Canadian troops learned the Vimy glide, advancing at a measured pace of 100 yards every three minutes to match a creeping artillery barrage. Perfect timing was essential. Japs, you shall go over exactly like a railroad train, on time, or you shall be annihilated. A large-scale issue of maps of the battlefield had a psychological impact on the soldiers. Formerly, maps were for officers. Marked maps were protected and rarely seen by the men. Now they were given to everyone, 40,000 in all. It meant they were trusted and were being given a share in the responsibility for the enterprise. Jeffrey Williams. Company 
will advance. Port arms! The task facing the Canadian Corps at Vimy was to overcome not only the natural obstacle of the ridge, but a series of technological and tactical innovations that greatly favored the defense. The combination of artillery, machine guns, trenches, barbed wire, and aircraft placed any attacking force at a distinct disadvantage. Trenches meant that defenders were hidden while attackers were in the open. Barbed wire channeled the attacking force into predetermined areas vulnerable to machine guns and artillery, while a massive buildup of supplies needed for any successful assault was easily observed from the air, rendering surprise virtually impossible. Everything Bing and Curry deemed crucial needed to be learned anew. Platoon formations, platoon tactics, the use of artillery, the removal of the enemy's wire, leaving one as yet unanswered question. How, under the constant gaze of the Germans, surprise was to be achieved? Although the first trench raid was staged at Ypres in February of 1915 by the Princess Pats, the man credited with developing and perfecting the trench raid was Brigadier General Victor Odlum of the 4th Division's 11th Brigade. Odlum, a Methodist and teetotaler, had earned the nickname Pea Soup for denying his troops their rum ration and substituting hot soup instead. By the time he reached Vimy, Odlum had already been wounded five times, won the DSO, and had seen his brother killed by his side. He led a number of night raids personally, shunning the use of a steel helmet so that his men might better recognize him in the midst of battle. In business life, where only pounds and shillings are at stake, we aim at 100% efficiency and we insist on getting it. Here, where lives are at stake, we are smugly satisfied with 25% efficiency. Commanding officers must have the moral courage to require and secure from officers and men alike the maximum of effort so as to produce the minimum of lost lives. Brigadier General Victor Odlum. The other day, one of our new infantry officers lost his way in the dark. Fritzy threw up a star shell near there. Our machine gunners saw him by its light and thinking he was a German, opened fire and, of course, killed him on the spot. The Huns knew we would send out a party the next night to get his body. So, they got a couple of machine guns and trained him on the spot so that our rescue party, as soon as they picked it up, would be wiped out. We, however, found out just in time, and so didn't bite, but left him stay there. Lieutenant Claude Williams. Trench raids were essential if officers and men were truly to understand the terrain in front of them and the enemy's defenses. But Bing and Curry disagreed over the value of large-scale raids. Bing believed raids were good for the morale of the men, a rationale which was lost on Curry. To Curry, there was only one reason to justify endangering the lives of his men in a raid, to secure information. 
and this was better achieved by smaller raids. From his studies of the French at Verdun, Curry had concluded that attackers could and should concentrate on the elimination of known machine gun nests and other strong points, rather than attack in an extended line. He set about reorganizing the platoon to include riflemen, machine gunners, and bombers. Previously, platoons had been separated by function, mirroring a class system in which machine gunners and bombers came to regard themselves superior to riflemen. The British clung to these distinctions, but Canadians readily embraced the new tactics. It may be pointed out that there is nothing new in this system of training. Before the war, we endeavored to make the platoon a self-reliant and self-sufficient unit of battle. Owing to the demands for so many specialists, there grew up in our battalions a wrong system of organization. More people were killed in the First World War by artillery than by any other means. The tactical approach to the use of artillery had been quickly established once the front between the Allies and the Germans was stabilized. From then on, each side simply added more and more guns. The attacking side would lay down a barrage designed to keep the defenders in the trenches as the assault began. The defending side replied both against the enemy's guns and against the infantry advancing over open ground. During lulls in the action, they fired intermittently as targets appeared, but they never stopped. The audacious plan arrived at by Bing and Curry was to locate the German guns and on the day of battle, destroy them before they could be used against our infantry. But the plan rested on the ability to locate the guns with pinpoint accuracy. And this task fell to Andrew L. McNaughton, a 29-year-old engineering professor from McGill. McNaughton was an eccentric. At battalion headquarters, he slept on the floor without a mattress and claimed as his personal mascot a lion cub, which some soldier had brought back from Paris after a night on the town. But he brought a keen scientific mind to his job. He also attracted a number of British scientists who had offered their special skills to the British high command, but had their advice rejected. Curry thought this lack of interest might have a more sinister cause. Is there some Freemasonry between the artillery of both sides? They fire at the opposing infantry, but never at each other. McNaughton and his colleagues came up with two ways of locating the enemy's guns, flash spotting and sound ranging. Flash spotting required a series of observation posts along the front, each equipped with telephone and surveying gear, reporting back to a panel of lights at headquarters. The other, sound ranging, required listening posts in no man's land, from where Keyes activated a recorder at McNaughton's headquarters. A series of microphones along the front, a mile and a half behind the lines, picked up sounds as the shells moved through the air and the location of the gun was determined from the time intervals between the microphones. McNaughton and his staff could ultimately determine the position of the gun to within a distance of 25 yards, its type and caliber, in under three minutes. Unfortunately, they could not demonstrate this skill by knocking out a German gun, 
since this would reveal to the enemy that their location was known. Bing and Curry allowed them one test. It failed. But their faith in their plan, and in McNaughton, did not waver. The British Army's high command looked on each of us as somebody who ought to have his head read. To them, this wasn't war at all. This was some sort of fandango going on. The observers take enormous risks and seldom get any glory. It's no child's play to circle above German artillery batteries for half an hour or more, with your machine tossing about in air, tortured by exploding shells, and black shrapnel puffballs coming nearer and nearer to you, like ever-extending fingertips of some giant hand of death. Billy Bishop. On one occasion, McNaughton, hovering some 4,000 feet above enemy lines in a balloon, came under fire. We went up, having a perfectly peaceful time looking at everything. When there was a terrific roar of a big naval shell bursting close to us, with nothing between us and the burst but a wicker basket, it wasn't a very comfortable feeling. McNaughton telephoned down enemy locations to his counter-battery, who were able to knock out the German artillery position just as they were zeroing in on McNaughton's balloon. Of all the Canadian officers at Vimy, none was stranger nor more innovative than Raymond Brutinel. Once a French reservist, Brutinel, at 23, emigrated to Edmonton. After nine years as explorer, prospector, land developer, and newspaper editor in the Canadian Northwest, he arrived in Montreal a millionaire. Routinel then formed and led what would become the first Canadian machine gun brigade, raising the money from a group of Canadian millionaires, including Clifford Sifton and John Craig Eaton. As a result of Routinel, Canada entered the war with more machine guns than Britain. Brutinel had the revolutionary idea that the machine gun, instead of being aimed at its target as a sort of super rifle, should be regarded as a form of artillery, firing over the heads of the enemy, denying him access to certain areas, thickening the artillery barrage, and by sweeping the enemy's front trenches, preventing him from repairing wire destroyed by the artillery. Brutinel called it indirect fire. At 3 p.m., we were to provide 3,000 rounds of indirect fire along a road 2,300 yards away. Private Donald Fraser. I would not be an infantry officer for anything now. I now understand the superior airs of the artillery. On the advance, the machine gunners are perhaps the most important branch. Lieutenant Claude Williams. The French chief of staff visited Vimy and, impressed, asked for a full report. A report from me would be of little value. The report should be made by the Germans themselves. They, and they alone, can give first-hand information on the subject. Brigadier General Raymond Brutinel. After Vimy, indirect fire was adopted by all Allied armies.
Dear father, you want to know some of my trench experiences. Well, they are much the same as ordinary life. Only, I keep my head down instead of up. I can tell you more about filling sandbags than fighting. We will soon have all France in sandbags. Then, we'll move on to Berlin. Private Ronald McKinnon. Extra precautions are taken against sickness. The most common is that called trench fever. A very high fever, aching in the joints, and an ague-like shiver, caused by too much exposure to mud, water, and rain. Another thing very carefully guarded against is trench feet. If one case of this is reported, the whole unit forfeits leave for six weeks. Consequently, everybody helps to prevent it. It was very prevalent the first two winter campaigns. But now that practically everybody on duty is provided with hip rubber boots, there's no excuse. Continued wet and cold feet bring this on, and it is very painful and resembles the after-effects of severe frostbite. In a great many cases, it means amputation. Lieutenant Claude Williams. In Curry's division, officers were ordered to witness their troops applying whale oil. If a soldier was forced to leave the line for treatment, the commanding officer faced a threat of court-martial. Often have I woke up in the old dugout, my hair standing straight up and one eye looking straight into the eyeball of the other, trying to obtain an answer to this burning question. I have kept my weary vigil over the parapet at night, with my rifle in one hand, a couple of bombs in the other, and two or three in each pocket. And still, I am pondering over this burning question. When do you think this goddamn war will be over, eh? Though frontline Canadian soldiers often referred to him as Heine, or collectively as the Bosch, and in less charitable moments, the Hun, to most of our troops, the enemy was just plain Fritz, a battlefield moniker which revealed a humanistic truth. It was hard to hate a man who suffered the same punishment as you. Fate keeps us apart, yet yonder he dwells, for I hear his voice. Now soft, and now swelling to thunder, and the keepsakes he sends me are choice. Ten weeks today in the trenches, how can Douglas Haig keep us apart? To a suffering soul, what sad wrenches, what cruelty this to my heart. Will he be like the quaint comic picture I carry along in my brain? of putty and sausage, a mixture, so fat and so stupid and plain. Someday, Captain Deer, I'll behold him, be he short, tall, or bloated or lean, and in my loving arms I'll enfold him, the Bosch I have never yet seen. Despite orders against fraternizing with the enemy, the wounded of both sides sometimes made a common ground of no man's land. Lieutenant Clifford Wells had an experience which was far from unique. Mother darling, 
In one of my letters, I spoke of a remarkable experience which I had. I met a German in no man's land one morning. He was on the same errand as I, looking for wounded. He offered to guide me to a number of Verwundete Englander lying in various shell holes. I got a stretcher party and brought them all in, nearly 25 in all, with the assistance of five other German stretcher bearers. The Germans brought the wounded to a point about midway between the lines, and my men carried them the rest of the way. For various reasons, I do not want you to say much about this incident. With much love, Clifford. But there existed a darker side of this relationship between opposing foot soldiers. A side, perhaps only seen and felt, through the crosshairs of a Lee Enfield. Sniping was a hazardous duty, carried out in pairs, one shooting, one observing. It often required the sniper to lie hidden in no man's land for days at a time. One of the most famous Canadian snipers of the war was Henry Louis Norwest, a Métis with the 50th Battalion out of Calgary. In three years of service as a sniper, Norwest would achieve an astonishing 115 fatal shots. He would win a military medal at Vimy for this particular skill, only to fall victim to a sniper's bullet three months before the end of the war. As one comrade-in-arms remarked, Henry Norwest went about his work with passionate dedication and showed complete detachment from everything while he was in the line. But not everyone was capable of attaining this same degree of detachment. On the third morning, we were in our usual position when I saw a German in full pack rise almost waist high in a place in their trench. The German was apparently a new man to that sector, or else had grown careless of danger. I tingled all over as I scored my first hit. Harry was tickled. He rubbed his hands and noted down the facts in his book, but had not finished when a second German, also in pack, rose in the same place. I shot him as soon as he appeared. Hardly had he fallen than a third man stepped on the piled earth and stared all around. I shot him very carefully, aiming directly at his left breast. As he pitched down beside the other two, two more Germans appeared. One had an immense head, round, enormous, and he glared like a bull. Harry gripped my shoulder. Shoot, man! He rasped in my ear. You won't get a chance like this again. A queer sensation had made me draw back. I handed him the rifle. Go ahead yourself if you want, I said. I've had enough of this bloody game. Wilbird. It was the policy of the Canadian Corps that each and every healthy soldier would do eight hours work per day, digging trenches, transporting ammunition, water, and equipment on foot, repairing trenches destroyed by the enemy shelling, moving guns whose location the enemy had discovered, looking after horses, repairing roads and railways, replacing and repairing wire, bringing up coal and fuel, digging latrines, recovering and removing the wounded, and burying the dead. Some troops, such as the 85th Battalion of the 4th Division, 
the Nova Scotia Highlanders were, in effect, work battalions. But everybody worked. Every man owes it to himself and to his comrades to put in a full day's work. Every officer owes it to the service to see that each man does his duty. Failure on the part of a man is disloyalty to his comrades. Failure on the part of an officer is due to moral cowardice. Brigadier General Victor Odlum. Colonel G. W. L. Nicholson wrote a report setting out what had had to be done. Within the Canadian forward area, more than 25 miles of road had to be repaired and maintained. A system of 20 miles of tramway in the core area had to be reconditioned and extended. Over these rails, light trains drawn by gasoline engines, or more often by mules, hauled forward daily 800 tons or more of ammunition, rations, and engineers' stores. And there were some 300 push trucks for evacuating wounded. The sudden concentration of 50,000 horses within a restricted area, where very little water existed, necessitated the large-scale construction of reservoirs, pumping stations, and 45 miles of pipeline in order to meet the daily requirement of 600,000 gallons. In order to ensure good communications in the Canadian zone, signalers added to existing circuits 21 miles of cable, burying it seven feet deep to withstand enemy shellings and 66 miles of unburied wire. As the area was in full view of the enemy, most of the work had to be done at night. One decisive Canadian advantage was that a large percentage of its men were used to heavy labor in the out-of-doors. Most could ride and manage horses, wield an axe, use a saw, or dig a ditch. The winter of 1917, considered horrendous by the Europeans, was mild by Canadian standards. Some indication of the Canadian advantage in outdoor work can be gained from these comments of a manual prepared for the British Second Army. The tump line is a very simple contrivance made of leather and is used to carry loads. In Canada, it has been used by both Indians and whites since the days of the French regime. On the Somme, the 11th Canadian Infantry Brigade, Tump Line Company, carried the following individual loads every night for 45 consecutive days over distances of 4,000 to 5,000 yards. 2,000 rounds of ammunition, three boxes of stoke shells, two boxes of bully beef, one case of biscuits, one bale of sandbags, two coils of barbed wire, one dozen shovels, and one dozen pickaxes. But the British had a further problem not shared to the same degree by the Canadians. A general prejudice against such devices owing to the close connection with coolie work must be overcome. Every endeavor should be made to counteract this feeling and to encourage men to use the tump line. In Canada, an ordinary, untrained man can carry a load weighing 75 pounds a distance of 15 miles over unbroken trails, and there is no reason the ordinary British soldier cannot do the same. Nevertheless, even among the Canadians, Battalions exclusively involved in such work and the companies assigned exclusively to it from each brigade suffered a distinct loss of prestige. 
And despite the ceaseless effort, men and animals lived in a state of chronic deprivation. As it turned out, we had a very cold winter, and our horses were on open lines with no shelter. To make matters worse, the feed rations were in short supply and were cut down. The horses got very thin and weak. At night, when the horses were blanketed, they would eat each other's blankets, leaving only the straps and buckles. Three or four died every night. It was pitiful to see them. Gordon Howard, 13th Field Regiment. On April 4th, the Royal Flying Corps launched a determined campaign to obtain air supremacy over Vimy. It was absolutely essential that artillery observation be allowed to continue unimpeded, and that communications with ground forces be established during the coming assault. The RFC had 369 observation planes and 385 fighters available, while the Germans had about a third of that total. But what they lacked in numbers, they more than made up for in superior machines and the skill and daring of the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, and his legendary Flying Circus. Saturday, March 17th, the Red Devil as the men now call him, was over today. He got another of our planes, but we evened the score by getting a German in the morning. One cannot help admiring the grace and skill with which the red fellow handles his machine, and his audacity in painting his plane red to advertise his presence to all beholders. Captain Duncan McIntyre. Around we went in cyclonic circles for several minutes. Here a flash of the Hun machines, then a flash of silver as my squadron commander would whiz by. I was glad the Germans were scarlet and we were silver. There was no need to hesitate about firing when the right color flitted by your nose. It was a lightning fight, and I had never been in anything just like it. Billy Bishop. My man was the first who fell. I suppose I had smashed up his engine. At any rate, he had made up his mind to land. I no longer give pardons to anyone. Therefore, I attacked him a second time, and the consequence was that his wings dropped off like pieces of paper, and the body fell like a stone. Baron Manfred von Richthofen. The month of April would soon become known as Bloody April for the ferocity of warfare in the skies over the Vimy and Arras sector. In that month alone, Richthofen would account for 30 kills. But the ultimate victory would belong to the RFC, to the pilots like Billy Bishop. First was chosen as the date for the largest trench raid of the war to be carried out by two battalions of General Watson's 4th Division. To achieve surprise, it was decided to dispense with a preliminary barrage. Instead, gas would be used. The Germans heard and saw the large gas cylinders being brought into place. 
and waited and watched as the raid was postponed twice for more favorable winds. General Watson's diary entry for the day makes the disaster that followed sound almost routine. March 1st, 1917. Our gas attack by the 11th and 12th Brigades took place this morning. To our surprise, the gas did not have the effect anticipated. When the Bosch were waiting for us, we had heavy casualties. Colonels Beckett and Kemble were killed, and 17 other officers. We brought back 40 prisoners. Some of the men of the gas platoons were badly gassed. General Bing went on leave this morning and sent me a nice letter before he went. General David Watson. A raid is a raid, but this was a battle without preparation. There was no preliminary barrage. They went forward without preparation and without protection. Every mistake of the past two years was repeated. This is a real disaster for our division. Captain Andrew McPhail, medical officer. Losses totaled 687 officers and men out of the 1,700 who had taken part, a casualty rate of 40%. The depleted ranks were filled with new men, but the 4th Division had too little time to repair the damage before zero hour, now set for Easter Sunday, April 8th. But the trench raids did not end. The Canadians raided the Germans every night in the two weeks before the battle. 327 Canadians died, and another 1,316 were wounded. Curry regarded these raids as a waste and debilitating to the troops. But they were that, too, for the Germans, who would call the week preceding the battle the Week of Suffering. With a week to go until zero hour, all the Allied guns were in place. The 15-inch howitzers of the Royal Marine Artillery were the last to arrive. Each weighed 20 tons and hurled a 1,500-pound projectile at enemy strong points and dugouts. Colonel Nicholson's report tells what happened. The heavy artillery was drawn up in a great arc, extending 22,000 yards. A crushing bombardment fell on the German positions. One Canadian records that shells poured over our heads like water from a hose, thousands and thousands each day. More than one million rounds of heavy and field ammunition with a total weight of 50,000 tons battered the limited area into a pockmarked wilderness of mud-filled craters. And no small part of the Germans' week of suffering was the announcement on Good Friday that the Americans had entered the war. I thank God in my heart that at last the English-speaking world has been drawn together. The prospect was bright, and our men very keen for the encounter to come. Canon Frederick Scott. Unknown to those around him, Major General Arthur Curry, Canada's most famous soldier, was also an embezzler. In 1913, to cover debts incurred in his real estate business, he had appropriated a government check meant to pay regimental debts to contractors. 
The honorary head of the regiment had promised to cover the check, but had welched. In 1915, Prime Minister Borden had been informed of Curry's action in an anonymous letter. By 1917, the contractors and others were writing to Curry directly. But no one, not even those whose money it properly was, wanted to reveal a truth that would lead to a court-martial which would shatter army and civilian morale. As Curry later admitted, for three years after the war began, it was the last thing he thought about at night and the first thing he thought about in the morning. On Easter Sunday, Arthur Curry, with no time or opportunity to deal with his own troubles, was attending to the task at hand. The date for the battle had been moved from Easter Sunday to Monday the 9th. And true to his motto, to neglect nothing, he sent patrols forward to determine if the artillery had been successful in cutting the German wire. The recently developed 106 fuse for artillery shells had been designed primarily for this purpose, but it was not infallible. When the patrols discovered that in places the wire remained intact, the division was pulled back so the artillery could complete the job. To Curry's right, the British 51st Division would take no such precautions and would pay a heavy price in consequence. The Germans at Vimy were already masters of tunneling when the Canadians arrived, creating intricate subterranean networks and laying mines beneath Allied positions. The British responded by actively seeking men with mining experience, engineers and geologists, to best the Germans at their own game. In the soft chalk of Vimy, the opposing armies tunneled furiously around the clock in an effort to dominate the nether regions of no man's land. Tunnelers used geophones to listen for the enemy digging in the vicinity, planting mine charges designed to collapse the parallel chambers of the enemy. Difficult decisions had to be made, especially when, according to listening reports, Canadian blow-ups were to be expected and the infantry had to withdraw from their trenches within the danger zone. There was always the risk that the enemy would realize the situation and take possession of those empty trenches without a fight. Leutnant Olaf Grieben. On more than one occasion, Canadian galleries opened into German ones, resulting in hand-to-hand -hand combat between tunnelers. At Vimy, 200 mines were exploded, contributing greatly to the cratered lunar landscape, which made traversing no man's land a difficult enough proposition without worrying about being killed in the process. Bing and Curry, as early as January, had recognized the tactical value of expanding their tunneling operations for the attack on the ridge. Troops could be moved safely, but above all, secretly, into forward positions close to the German lines thus achieving what the location seemed to have made impossible, surprise. By late March, there were 12 subways to the forward lines and beyond, running a total length of six miles. The subways were six feet, six inches tall and three feet wide, providing considerable headroom, but making it extremely difficult for troops to pass one another. The subway systems were so labyrinthine, troops required guides to ensure they did not get lost in transit. I was all through a most wonderful cave carved in the solid chalk. It was about 20 feet 
from floor to roof, which was supported by pillars of chalk. It looked like some scene from Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. On every side, men were sleeping, eating, playing cards, and cleaning their weapons by the light of scores of candles. Captain Duncan McIntyre. On Sunday night, April 8th, the first wave of Canadian troops began to enter the tunnels for the journey to the forward positions and the jumping off trenches. In these dozen tunnels, dimly lit and dank, thousands stood, slept, crouched, wrote letters, smoked, sweated, defecated in barrels, sipped tea, recited poetry, dreamt, prayed to God, and imagined the moment of their own demise, quick and painless, or prolonged and agonizing. And most surprisingly, given the crowded circumstances and the anxiety each must have felt, no one panicked. It was the worst night I have ever put in. It would rain a while, then snow a while. Then Fritz would see some of us and send up his artillery signals and open up on us for a while. At 4.30, one of the officers came along the trench with a rum and I took a dandy. By 5.30, I was all nerve. Private Southworth. At 4 a.m. on Easter Monday, Canon Scott, senior chaplain with the 1st Division, rose from his bed, fixed himself breakfast, packed a tin of bully beef, and set off to view the spectacle of the artillery barrage that would signal the beginning of the Canadian assault on Vimy Ridge. It is no wonder that to those who have been in the war and passed through such moments, ordinary life and literature seem very tame. The thrill of such a moment is worth years of peacetime existence. In the awful silence around us, it seemed as if nature were holding her breath in the expectation of the staggering moment. 529, God help our men. 530. Nine hundred and eighty-three guns and mortars erupted with an earth-shattering roar. The Battle of Vimy Ridge had begun. Only days before the attack, Will Bird, suffering from mumps, had been removed to a field hospital behind the lines. Towards morning, I lay awake and listened for the barrage. I could picture the boys in the trench, tense, waiting, staring over the parapet. Mud would be everywhere plastering their clothing, gripping their feet. Even where we were, we could hear it so plainly that it awed us, kept us quiet. Will Bird, 42nd Battalion. In London, Prime Minister Lloyd George heard the far-off thunder. The guns fired for three minutes, then lifted 100 yards. This barrage also included 150 of Brutonel's machine guns, sweeping a zone 400 yards ahead. Within the Canadian barrage were guns previously zeroed in on the German counter-batteries by McNaughton and his helpers. 
More than anything else, their success would ultimately determine the outcome of the battle for Vimy Ridge. I managed to send down 14 NF calls, which was great fun. NF is code for guns firing in position at. After 10 minutes, shells could be seen falling all around the located batteries. Every time a battery opened up, it was immediately zone called and shelled to hell. Captain Routh, RFC. The Canadian bombardment of the German supply routes during the week of suffering had prevented the enemy from transporting the daily allotment of shells forward, which, according to the official German history, had dire consequences. German ration parties, which formally reached the front line in 15 minutes, took six hours. Rations cooled and spoiled, and many of the forward companies were without food for as much as three days. Sleep became fitful and was followed by exhaustion. After the battle, the Germans would claim that the physical weakness of their troops was a major factor in their loss. Colonel G. W. L. Nicholson. From the very beginning of the battle, there was a shortage of ammunition, which meant that the German infantry had to fight alone, without effective support from the artillery. The Canadians had managed to eliminate 176 of 212 German counter-batteries. The artillery had done their job, exceeding even McNaughton's hopes and expectations. It now fell to the ground troops of the four Canadian divisions to capture Vimy Ridge. The Allied High Command, French and British, scoffed in derision when they were presented with the battle plan for Vimy Ridge. Each objective, Black Line, Red Line, Blue Line, Brown Line, was assigned specific times, not only for their capture, but for when the assault would be resumed. According to the plan, the capture of Vimy Ridge would be over and complete by 1.30 p.m., just six hours after the attack was to be launched. The times allotted to each phase were designed to enable the artillery to dictate the pace of the battle. The first, second, and third divisions had similar terrain, but different distances to travel. The ridge was wider at some parts than at others, and therefore the enemy's defensive positions varied, closer together on the left than on the right. Curry's first division had the furthest to move, three miles to its final objective, Farbus Woods, on the far side of Vimy Ridge. As soon as the artillery barrage opened up, away we went, and all you could see was smoke and Fritz running. Some whole ones, but mostly pieces of them going up in the air. Private Southward. We felt so safe with the rolling barrage in front. You could see the thing beating. It was like a lawnmower, you know, when you're cutting grass. Private H. Campbell, Royal Montreal Regiment. A person would naturally think that the very life would be frightened out of a fellow. But fear never enters your mind. All you look for is go ahead and blood. 
The noise of the artillery and the bursting shells get you going. Little of the enemy's fire was coming from his trenches, where most of them huddled underground, nor from his artillery, which was quickly being eliminated. But the German strong points Canadian patrols had identified in their trench raids were active and effective. So were the counter tactics the Canadians had practiced so often and assiduously. The Royal Montreal Regiment suffered heavy casualties there from machine guns that attempted to hold up their advance. Two were put out of action by Mail's bombs. One was attacked by a party led by Lieutenant Davidson, and another captured by Company Sergeant Major Hurley, who bayoneted the crew. Two more machine guns were put out of action by W.J. Milne of the Canadian Scottish. Later that day, he was killed, never knowing that he had won the Victoria Cross. With the battle joined, the generals momentarily found themselves with nothing to do but wait. As the Canadians reached their first objective, a Royal Flying Corps reporting plane, klaxon blaring, buzzed low over the field. The troops waved flags with their divisional symbol, the red patch, to show that the black line was theirs, most of it captured precisely on schedule, the remainder on the right ten minutes later. Under the very eyes of the enemy, pipes blaring lustily, Major Grote and Piper Al McNeil advanced upon the captured trench that, uh, at this point, marked the black line. Then came Lieutenant Colonel Cy Peck, commander of the Canadian Scottish, followed by two batmen, both carrying a rum jar under each arm. As the procession drew near and entered the German trench, a great cheer went up. Nigel Cave. I dropped into a shallow trench. I was on the point of climbing out when a shell with a dull pop burst on the parapet, almost in my face. My breathing stopped. I could neither breathe in nor out. It was a peculiar sensation. In a flash, I knew it was a gas shell. In a fraction of a second, I had my respirator on and was breathing freely. Private Donald Fraser. There were eight tanks allotted to the 2nd Division, with orders to support the infantry advance to the crest of the ridge and destroy sections of uncut wire on the reverse slope. They never got that far. Bogged down, the tanks became sitting ducks. Their sole purpose, that of drawing fire. We had wonderful luck. We passed the tanks, went through Gas and Fritz's barrage, also two lines of barbed wire, without a single casualty. We passed a town we had seen on the map. Nothing to show where it was, but the wall of one lone house. Finally, we got to our objective and found the Bosch had in a great many cases already retired. Their dugouts were full of revolvers, clothes, food, and everything. Just as if he had been eating a meal he never expected we would get that far, Lieutenant Claude Williams. The Canadians, except for the 4th Division, had reached the crest of Vimy Ridge and now worked their way to the Brown Line. The victory had been quick and overwhelming. When I retire tonight, it is to a downy couch on which last night a Lieutenant Carl stretched out his form. 
He certainly got out in a hurry, as he left behind all kinds of cigars, cigarettes, beer, tobacco, black bread, butter, and sausages, not to mention equipment. You have heard all kinds of stories about how the Bosch soldiers are starved in the trenches. From what I have seen of their commissariat in this district, they are better fed than our own boys. The regimental history of the 263rd Bavarian Reserve Regiment, opposite the Canadian 3rd Division, begins by noting that only one man of their 1st Battalion returned from the forward line on April 9th. He was a farmer named Hagemann. The German artillery barrage was directed on the enemy trenches and went over the heads of the Canadian infantry. It did no harm to them. The enemy's artillery, on the other hand, was directed during the entire attack by very lights from observation planes. As a result, the fire was very well placed and was always just a little forward of the Canadian infantry. This, and the heavy machine gun fire, caused very heavy German casualties. The Canadian 3rd Division had the advantage of the two largest tunnels on the front. Emerging from the tunnels, they fell on the Germans before they could get out of their dugouts. Outside, the day century shouted, get outside, the British are coming. The English, no, they were Canadians, had broken through on our left and were already rolling up our defense. The corporal shouted, come up, they have already passed our trench. I went out. I was alone, and saw only Canadians. As I found out later, they had drunk much liquor. I ran in the direction of the pimple, but I was hit in the right forearm. Then I met a pal. We took each other by the hands and ran around planlessly among the dead until we came to a Canadian dugout where we found six Canadians playing cards who paid no attention to us. When the game was over, one of them turned and said, Hello, Fritz, are you wounded? Then patched me up and sent us to the rear. Privat Otto Schroeder. By 1.30, the task of the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Divisions was complete, and three-quarters of the ridge was in Canadian hands. The unheard of had happened. Virtually a whole battle had gone exactly and to the minute according to plan. But not everywhere. The 3rd Division had reached its final objective by 11 o'clock and were in command of the ridge. But as early as 9 o'clock, one of their battalions, the Royal Highlanders of Canada, were ordered to throw a defensive line all the way back to their starting point, protecting the flank. The 4th Division on their left was in trouble. Suddenly out of the blackness came one bank of smoke of every color imaginable, with the heavy explosions of mines puncturing the continuous roar of the artillery barrage. Captain Harvey Crowell, Nova Scotia Highlanders. Thus began the Battle of the 4th Division, commanded by Major General Watson. His objective included Hill 145, the highest point on Vimy, and along with a knoll called the Pimple, the most strongly fortified. The assault would utilize two brigades, the 11th under Brigadier Victor Odlum on the right and the 12th 
under Brigadier James McBrien on the left. The 4th Division had been seriously weakened by the ill-fated trench raid of March the 1st, sustaining 700 casualties, many of whom were experienced officers. Captain Thane McDowell, who would subsequently win the Victoria Cross for his capture of a German dugout, sent battle reports back to battalion headquarters. The mud is very bad, and our machine guns are filled with mud. The runner with your message for A Company has just come in and says he cannot find any of the company officers. I don't know where my officers or men are. One German trench had been deliberately left undamaged in the belief that taken intact, the trench would provide cover from the guns above. The decision had disastrous consequences. Half the 87th Battalion, the Grenadier Guards of Montreal, was eliminated in the first six minutes, including 10 of 11 officers. Slowed by the German firepower, the Canadians lost the protection of the barrage. The 54th Battalion from the Kootenays, which had courageously fought its way to the summit of Hill 145, now came under fire from the flank and had to retreat. The 102nd Warden's Warriors from Northern BC dug in on their objective on the right of Hill 145. Back at 11th Brigade Headquarters, Brigadier Odlum needed fresh troops to take the hill. There was only one unit available, the Work Battalion, the 85th of Nova Scotia. Not having a place in any brigade, we were only recognized when work parties were wanted, laughed at because we were the Highlanders without kilts. Captain Harvey Crowell. On the day of the battle, the 85th had been given the task of digging a new communication trench. But now Odlum called Captain Crowell and Captain Percy Anderson to 11th Brigade headquarters in the Tottenham Tunnel and informed them that the 85th would join the battle. Their attack was set for 6.45 p.m., following a 12-minute barrage on enemy positions. But unknown to Crowell, at the last moment, Odlum canceled the barrage, fearful of killing his own troops scattered throughout the area. Just before zero hour, I remember looking back and seeing the brassy setting sun blazing in the eyes of the Germans. At 5.45, there was no barrage. Watches had been synchronized. Half a minute went by. Still no barrage. I had then to decide that when one minute was up, barrage or no barrage, we were to advance. As soon as they started to advance, they came under heavy fire. No assisting barrage and no run issue to start off. And yet the effect of the exposure to machine gun fire was stimulating. It was worthwhile to get cheers from a section of our troops who were hanging on to an exposed flank at a large crater as we advanced. But when we could make out the groups of enemy where fire was coming from, at about 100 to 150 yards, our machine gun fire was getting real unpleasant. Within 50 yards of the German second line, where they still operated five machine guns at the top of the undemolished dugout entrances, they turned and ran. 
and then the ordinary man was overcome with the lust to kill. In one hour, the Nova Scotians, the Highlanders without kilts, would gain control of Hill 145, overrunning their objective. Dear father and mother, yes, we were in it up to our eyes, and if I was proud of the battalion before, I'm a thousand times more so now. They did magnificently. At the last minute, they were given a tough nut to crack. Some splendid chaps went down, but they are just an incentive to our chaps to see that they did not die in vain. Our name is written down, all right. Now, Major J.L. Ralston. Three days later, the 44th from Manitoba and the 50th of Calgary, which included a large number of Japanese Canadians, 35 of whom would die at Vimy, successfully captured the knoll on the extreme left of Vimy Ridge known as the Pimple. By mid-afternoon, April 12, 1917, the triumphant Canadians on the whole length of Vimy Ridge looked out over unspoiled lands to the east. From the crest, the whole plain of Douai lay at our feet. The vista was one of peaceful-looking villages nestling in green woods, of prosperous towns on the far horizons from whose high chimney stacks poured clouds of smoke, and of railways over which trains were still running. Private William Kentner. Vimy Ridge was the deepest advance the British forces had made in two and a half years of war. It was the first time German siege guns had been captured. It broke the hinge of the new defense line conceived by Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the Supreme German commanders. April 9th happened to be Ludendorff's birthday and a party was scheduled at German headquarters. Hindenburg found Ludendorff sitting, dispirited by news of the Vimy defeat. He sat down opposite him, reached out, took Ludendorff's face in his hands and said, We've known worse days. But not in the opinion of Crown Prince Ruprecht, who wrote his father, I doubt that we can recapture the Vinny Ridge. This leads to the question, is there any sense in continuing the war? And Hindenburg, with a few more hours to think about it, wrote, The impact of the news throws a somber picture. Much shade little light. General Paul von Hindenburg. The victory had not come cheaply. The Canadian Corps had suffered 10,602 casualties, including 3,600 dead. Though the exact number of Germans killed in the defense of the ridge has never been tallied, they are thought to have lost more than the Canadians, plus 4,000 taken prisoner. I never want you ever to go through what I have this winter, especially on the 9th, on Vimy. For it was a hell on earth, and I am very lucky to be here today. I do not mind the loss of my eye, for I am well pleased to save my life. For 
Private Southworth. When Wilbird returned to his platoon, he remembered Freddy, a platoon mate, who'd had a dream in which death had appeared personified, pointing out those who would not survive the coming battle. Freddy himself had been included as one who would die. Freddy was gone. He had predicted truly. A big shell had landed beside him, killing him and burying him. Charlie had fallen in the first rush, riddled with bullets. Joe, the ex-policeman, had fought through to the objective and had been killed by a sniper on the flank. One shell had wiped out Stevenson, Terrio, and Roy as they grouped by a captured gun. McMillan had been shot in the stomach and had died after waiting hours in a trench. Billy, the complainer, had fallen as he charged a machine gun, keeping on until he was almost within reach of the gunners. Big Herman had shaken hands with Freddy, said goodbye to him, and then had run amok. He was found almost at the bottom of the ridge, near a battery position, with eight dead Germans about him, four of them killed by bayonet. Six months ago, we had marched to Mount Saint-Eloi, eagerly, bravely, our tin hats askew and with a cheeky retort for every command, hiding whatever secret apprehensions we had, not knowing the heavy, ominous silence that follows the burst of shells and the cries of the wounded, not knowing what it is to scrape a hasty grave at night and there bury a man who has worked with you and slept with you since you enlisted. Will Bird. Although for me, it is only about a year's service in France, it seems as if I had been born out here and have never known anything but everlasting mud and perpetual shell fire. None of us have lost our nerve, but the novelty has worn off. And we have seen too much of the shady side of fighting to love it for the mere sake of adventure. When called upon, we are cheerfully ready to do anything we are told, but do not feel the same wild enthusiasm as formerly. We are all steadies and sobered up. Lieutenant Claude Williams. I met a British staff officer coming back from the front who told me he belonged to Army Headquarters. He asked me if I was a Canadian, and when I replied that I was, he said, I congratulate you upon it. Never since the world began have men made a charge with finer spirit. It was a magnificent achievement. After three years of bloody stalemate, the Allies had reason to believe the end of the war was in sight. Eager to erase the memories of Ypres and the Somme, the press sang the praises of the Canadians. No praise of the Canadian achievement can be excessive. Canada has sent across the sea an army greater than Napoleon ever commanded in the field. The New York Tribune. The British press was less enthusiastic. The Times downplayed the Canadian success, giving credit to Haig and the British staff. The Daily Mail correspondent, W. Beach Thomas, seemed, if anything, even further removed from reality. At 5.30 this morning, Sir Douglas Haig, by deliberate choice, 
through the weight of the British Army against, perhaps, the strongest force of the enemy ever yet concentrated in such a fortress. Will Ruprecht of Bavaria take the challenge of General Allenby and General Horn, Sir Douglas Haig's chief lieutenants in the battle? Only time will tell. W. H. Thomas. How often through the long months at Vimy, had a Canadian stared over the parapet at the great humpback ridge looming in the distance and wondered what lay beyond. In the twilight, just before the darkness, we stood and looked down over the ridge on the enemy side. The first flares rose in scattered places, and we could not distinguish the lines. The air was damp and chilling. An unearthly feeling predominated. The dead men, the solitary flares, the captured ground, gave me a sense of ghosts about and one realized the tragedy of that stricken hill. Will Bird. General Bing and General Curry were both rewarded for the Vimy victory, as was only proper since the Battle of Arras, of which Vimy was a part, was a dismal failure everywhere else. Bing was given command of the British Third Army, and Curry, elevated to Lieutenant General, was made commander of the Canadian Corps, then commander of the Canadian Expeditionary Force, which was then given independent status within the British High Command, applicable only to the Canadians. In the fall of 1917, General David Watson, commander of the 4th Division, and Brigadier Victor Odlum, both wealthy men, would loan Curry the money to pay off his debt to his old regiment. The enormous weight which had so burdened Curry during the war had finally been lifted. The stature of Curry among the Allied generals of World War I continues to increase. Dennis Winter, author of Haig's Command, A Reassessment, describes Curry as follows. Curry remains the most successful Allied general and one of the least well-known. His capture of the Drocourt Overt Switch in the autumn of 1918 remains the British Army's single greatest achievement on the Western Front. The combination of unprecedented densities of artillery and machine guns with flexible infantry sections was the Canadian trademark under Curry's command. Whenever Haig planned a breakthrough or came upon a particular obdurate German position, British units were pushed aside and Dominion troops were put in charge. Were the men who made up the British Army therefore inferior, man for man? Were they less brave, less intelligent, less enduring than Dominion soldiers? Dennis Winter. What made the difference was preparation, Winter concludes, and Curry, who had devised and supervised the preparation of the Canadians, would agree. If the lessons of war have been thoroughly mastered, if the artillery preparation and support is good, if our intelligence is properly appreciated, there is no position that cannot be wrested from the enemy by disciplined, well-trained, and well-led troops attacking on a sound plan. General Arthur Curry. Curry's relationship with Canadian soldiers was almost unique. 
in military annals. Like them, he was an amateur and a volunteer who had never seen war firsthand. Like his men, he had seized an opportunity to forge an identity that would bring unquestioning respect from friend and foe alike. Thus, the reputation of the Canadians and their commander were inextricably linked. In the final Allied offensive of 1918, Marshal Foch, by now supreme commander of all Allied ground forces, used the fearsome reputation of the Canadians to mislead and distract the Germans. Distraction is an essential element in surprise. And in this case, it's centered around the introduction of the Canadians. Regarding them as stormtroops, the enemy tended to greet their appearance as an announcement of a coming attack. The Canadian Corps was near Arras, and an aptly chosen fraction of it, two battalions, two casualty clearing stations, and a wireless section, was dispatched northward to Kemmel in Flanders. Then, the bulk of the Canadian Corps was filtered down to the Somme, where ingenious rumors were circulated among the British to account for their appearance. But even then, the Canadians did not move into the line until a few hours before the assault. Sir Basil Liddell Hart. The British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, stated that if the war had continued another year, he would have made Curry field commander of all British forces. memorial to Canadian warriors. It is the inspired expression in stone, chiseled by a skillful Canadian hand, of Canada's salute to her fallen son. It marks the scenes of feats of arms which history will long remember and Canada can never forget. In 1922, France had ceded to Canada 250 acres on Hill 145 in perpetuity for a memorial park to honor the fallen soldiers at Vimy. The Canadian Battlefields Memorial Commission supervised a design contest, and the winning design chosen from among 160 submissions was by Toronto sculptor Walter Allward. On the wall stands the heroic figure of Canada brooding over the graves of her valiant dead. Behind her stand two pylons, symbolizing the Canadian and French, while between, at the base of these, is the spirit of the sacrifice, who, giving all, throws the torch to his comrades. Looking up, they see the figures of peace, justice, truth, and knowledge for which they fought, chanting the hymn of peace. Walter Allward. Construction of the Vimy Memorial had taken 10 years. Will Byrd, visiting the site in 1930 when the memorial was only partially completed, described it in an article for Maclean's. Canada has placed a magnificent work of art under the design of a Canadian in Europe where so many great works of art are to be found. Europe, viewing the finished work, will change her impressions of the Canadians as a people. Will Bird. 
As Bird trudged over the battered landscape, still cratered and uneven, he suddenly realized what an advantage the Germans truly held on the ridge. Even as late as 1930, the ground around Vimy was still offering up evidence of the human cost. Two boys visited the Givenchy Wood last summer, and while playing there found a German and Canadian soldier lying together, their hands locked so tightly that they were buried together as they had died. One, or both, had been badly wounded, and they were trying to help each other when death overtook them. No weapons, no sign of enmity. They had died as comrades. Will Bird. Will Bird knew the soldier's truth. After three years of trench warfare, he had carried this knowledge home with him. A knowledge shared by all veterans of this terrible conflict. Their survival had made them prisoners in a world apart, unable to articulate this feeling to those who were not there. Prisoners, joined by chains forged in the trenches, until death set them free. Never on earth was there a like place where a man's support, often his sole support, was his faith in some mighty power. All intervening thoughts were swept aside. Unconsciously, there were born faiths that carried men through critical moments, and tortured minds grasped fantasies that served in place of more solid creeds. The trench at zero hour was a crucible that dissolved all insincerity and the superficial. Men glimpsed, or thought they glimpsed, that grim crossroads we must all pass. It was as if for them, a voice had spoken, a hand beckoned them on, and at once there fell from them all frenzy and confusion. White-faced, unsmiling, filled with a strange courage, they greeted that which awaited them. Will Bird. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.